Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I'm your host, Laura Reeves. Here at the Good Dog Pod, we are all about supporting dog breeders and responsible dog ownership. Join our mission and help change the conversation because we are all stronger together. Good Dog is on a mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them through education and advocacy. The Good Dog Pod provides dog lovers with the latest updates in canine health and veterinary care, animal legislation and legal advocacy, canine training and behavior science, and dog breeding practices. Subscribe and join our mission to help give our dogs the world they deserve. Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves. And I'm being joined again today by Dr. Lori Cesario, and we are talking about cancer, and we're doing a little bit of myth-busting. Right, Lori? Yep, lots of myth-busting. Yeah, myth-busting is the best. So (laughs) I'm super glad to have you join us. Glad to be here. And I think the information that you're providing for people here is so valuable, and I really, really appreciate that we're able to talk about some of these things that otherwise our listeners may not realize. So Mm -hmm. let's start with right off the top, Mm -hmm. the myths about how can you tell if this is benign? Mm -hmm. You can't tell by looking at it, right? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, this is one of the biggest ones. And this is really important. The big take home is that when you look at a skin tumor, even if you feel a skin tumor, you can't say just by looking at it that it's benign and not cancerous or not malignant. And just as a refresher for everybody, benign just means that it's something where if you do surgery and you get all the tumor cells, the dog's going to be cured. Whereas if it's malignant, that means that the tumor does have the potential to spread to other places in the body. Right. So, you know, we might look at a skin tumor and feel it and think that it's probably benign, but the only way to know for sure is to take a sample, like to do a needle aspirate. Right. So we always say our eyes are not microscopes. So I think that's a good rule of thumb. Yep. I think that is a great rule of thumb. And you also were mentioning earlier, and I think this is really important for people to understand and to remember with their pets, you can't know if that cancer spread. Yeah, exactly. So the only way to really know at this point in time is by doing a chest x-ray or an abdominal ultrasound or sampling a lymph node. So really looking at an organ Mm -hmm. and taking a sample as well. So I would say more often than not, a dog will feel 100% normal, but cancer might be in a lymph node or might be in another organ. And that's certainly not to scare people by any means. Right. I'm just trying to raise awareness that right. if somebody recommends that your dog has chest x-rays prior to doing surgery to remove a skin tumor, you don't want to just say, oh no, there's no way that my dog could have cancer in the lungs because he's just feeling perfectly normal. That's just not the way that we tell that. Right. Same thing with blood work. I think most people think that routine blood work can pick up cancer, but it's often just completely normal, even if a dog has a skin tumor or a tumor in the spleen or something like that. So 
with our current abilities in science, right. blood work just doesn't pick up most types of cancer. So x-rays and ultrasounds are really your best window, yeah, if you will, into the internal workings. Exactly. Okay. And sometimes something like a lymph aspirate. There are a few specific types of cancer that cause blood work changes, but 90% of them don't. Okay. And another thing that you mentioned earlier when we were talking the idea that dogs express pain and nausea and different things in different ways. So can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, that's I think that's huge. important to hear. Yeah, that's really important just because, of course, as dog owners, we always want our dogs to have the very best quality of life possible throughout their entire life. And a big part of making sure that that happens is making sure that they're as pain-free as possible that they don't have upset stomachs, and if they do, that we just address it. Mm -hmm. So they're really, really good at hiding pain. You know, when we're painful, we complain about it. (laughs) We make a big deal. Well, isn't that the thing that says if you can start your day without a cup of coffee and (laughs) not complain when your joints hurt, you're really a dog, right? Right, exactly, yeah. But dogs do a very good job of hiding it. And certainly Mm -hmm. some breeds are more stoic than others. But there are things like a limp. Lots of dogs will just limp. And unless they're really vocalizing, most people might just blow that off as just saying, oh, you know, he's just limping, no big deal. Mm -hmm. But just to put it into perspective, some dogs will get bone tumors like osteosarcoma that will kind of eat away at the bone. And I've even had patients where the bone tumor actually caused the bone to fracture. And the only way that we actually knew that bone was broken was to take x-rays. The dog was just limping, eating normally, acting normally around the house. And then when we took x-rays and told the family that the bone was broken, they were just in kind of disbelief, which is understandable. Yeah. So it's really important to learn the more subtle signs of pain. And if something is off, you can just alert your veterinarian and have them help you figure out if that might be a sign of pain or not. And then you mentioned nausea. Yes, because I think this one is really interesting. Yeah, most people think nausea equals vomiting, and that's about it. But I think the important thing to know is that vomiting is actually the last sign of nausea. So it's important to learn some of the earlier signs of nausea that typically precede vomiting, especially if your dog is on some sort of medication or maybe has some underlying condition that makes them nauseous. Mm -hmm. So earlier signs of nausea could be anything like decreased appetite. So if they skip breakfast or don't finish breakfast or excessive drooling, or maybe if they're a little bit lethargic or they do the slip smacking thing. So any of those things could be nausea. And then vomiting is typically if those signs go unnoticed or just get worse. And as I said, I don't know that I ever thought of it in like the process, the Mm -hmm. order in which the dog processes their body feeling nauseous. I think that is actually really interesting. Yeah. And it's helpful, especially if a dog is getting chemotherapy. Most dogs on chemo don't have nausea, but up to 25% will. So if you know that my dog got chemotherapy, he might have nausea within the first few days. So if you know some of those earlier signs to look out for and you say, oh, you know, he didn't finish breakfast and 
I think he's drooling a little bit. You know that he's probably nauseous, so it's time to give him some anti-nausea medication to prevent vomiting. Well, and I think, too, that it's interesting that dogs process chemotherapy different than people do. Yeah. And that is a difficult thing for us to kind of get our heads around. Like everybody knows someone who's had cancer treatment and just been devastated by the chemo. Exactly. So understanding that our dogs process that differently, I think is super valuable if you can talk to that. Yeah. And the big thing is just that our philosophy in treating dogs with cancer is very different than in human medicine. In human medicine, for the most part, for most people, they do try and treat you very, very aggressively to get a cure. In veterinary medicine, we know that dogs are not choosing this for themselves. Our hope is that, yes, they live longer, but we don't want to compromise quality of life in order to get longevity. So we treat them less aggressively. We don't give the same dosages of chemotherapy that they do in people. So we don't treat them as aggressively as they do in people. And because of that, now, we don't have as many dogs living as long as some people, but their quality of life is typically much better. Now, they don't live as long as people to start with. They don't. They don't. I mean, we put it into that perspective of if we add a year to a dog's life, it's like adding 10 years to a person's exactly, life. Exactly. So. Yeah. And the other big thing is that I always tell people when we start treatment that it's not like you're signing a contract. You know, you're not getting on a train that you can't get off. So we start treatment. If it's working and your dog feels good, then great, we keep going. But if your dog doesn't feel well, just let me know. We'll take a step back. We'll think through things. We'll make adjustments Mm -hmm. because we want this to be a good experience. Well, and I think you have the Canine Cancer Academy. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a really fascinating specialty practice just to start with. Mm -hmm. And I love that you are able to bring that accumulated resources to the audience. So I think that that's amazing. The one that you mentioned that I thought was a different way of thinking about it, that people are concerned that the cancer is possibly transmissible Mm -hmm. to each other or to the person, to the human. Here's another myth busting. We're going to go with no on that, right? (laughs) Yes. A lot of clients are concerned that they might be able to get cancer from their dogs or that their dogs just by sharing water bowls or food bowls might be able to give cancer to each other. So you definitely can't get cancer from your dog. So you can rest assured about that. And there's only one cancer that can be passed from dog to dog. This is sort of a strange one. We're going to put this in the Mythbusters and the Mystery Shopper or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Most people throughout the world really do not have to worry about this. It's called TVT or transmissible venereal tumor. It's actually a sexually transmitted type of cancer, as strange as that might sound. It typically only occurs in very warm climates, like If you were in the Caribbean, more near the equator, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not going to find it in Minnesota or upstate New York or Canada or anywhere like that. Typically, you'll find it in places where there are lots of roaming, unneutered male dogs and lots of sexual activity. Thankfully, it is pretty responsive to chemotherapy. So most dogs have an excellent prognosis and get a complete remission. But yeah, for the most part, people don't have to worry about dogs passing cancer from one to the other. Excellent. I know one that we didn't necessarily have on our list, Mm -hmm. myth busting regarding 
cancer and spay neuter speaking of unaltered dogs it's the hardest question yeah i know it is a super hard question yeah. i'm not throwing you under the bus here but i think <laughs> that we need to look at this in both directions so it prevents certain ones and doesn't prevent other ones yeah. so let's throw that into the myth busting category okay so if we spay a female dog before her first cycle that should prevent for the most part any mammary tumors and in dogs if a dog gets a mammary tumor about half are benign and half are malignant mm -hmm. if a dog is neutered from a young age that should prevent testicular tumors and for the most part i would say scrotal tumors if most of the scrotum is removed for the most part in dogs testicular tumors are not terribly aggressive I would say for the most part, dogs can get some types of mast cell tumor on the scrotum that might behave aggressively. Mm -hmm. So there is some kind of benefit there as far as cancer is concerned. I think more to probably what you're getting at is the whole osteosarcoma question mark. Right. And I think the jury is probably still out on what is the best way to go forward. Because there's some association with Rottweilers in particular. There was a particular study that was done on that. Yeah, in regard to when we spay and neuter Rottweilers and increasing their risk of osteosarcoma. Mm -hmm. But it's just so hard because there are so many different things to consider. If you spay and neuter a dog too early, that's a large breed dog, they're at higher risk of getting cruciate rupture, which was painful and nobody wants to deal with. So I think we have to look at every dog individually and take their breed into account. And it's just a discussion for sure to have with your veterinarian as far as what's right for you and for your dog. Right. Excellent. And do we have any myth busting that we can do on specific breeds being more prone or less prone or anything like that? to the various cancers? So for sure, there are many breeds that have a higher incidence of getting different types of cancers. Because we see the same cancers show up in the same breeds all of the time, we do suspect that there is a genetic component for the most part for many of these different types of cancers, even though we haven't been able to identify it. So we do know that in Scottish Terriers, for example, they're 16 times more likely to get transitional cell carcinoma. We know that Bernese Mountain Dogs have a 25% lifetime risk of getting histiocytic sarcoma. We know that Golden Retrievers, 65% of them will ultimately die from some type of cancer. They commonly get lymphoma and hemangiosarcoma, mm -hmm. other types of cancers as well. Boxers commonly get things like muscle tumors and lymphoma. The list kind of just goes on and on. Right. And I have an article that we can link to in the show notes that has yes. just a ton of breed predispositions. Right. And I think that would be super useful for people when they're researching a new breed or when they're looking at a breeding program or anything right. along those lines. Yeah, I think that would be helpful. I think the one thing that commonly comes up, and most people associate diet with cancer. We certainly know that there are links for ourselves, diet being related to different types of cancers in people, but 
unfortunately, we just don't have that information in veterinary medicine yet. So we don't know that a specific ingredient or type of diet makes dogs more or less at risk to getting different types of cancer. The only one piece of information we know is that in one study, they looked at Scottish Terriers who were at risk for getting bladder cancer. And those dogs that received vegetables about three times a week, many of them were given carrots, but all different times, they had about a 30% decreased risk of getting transitional cell carcinoma. But Mm. it was only for Scottish Terriers. They didn't look at other types of cancer or different breeds. So I've had clients that have fed their dogs organic food their entire life. I had clients that literally slaughtered the meat themselves for their dogs. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, they, they still develop cancer. We hope that with studies like the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study, that's right. following 3,000 Golden Retrievers over the course of their entire lifetime and looking for genetic, environmental, and nutritional things that lead to cancer and other diseases that maybe more diet-related risk factors will come out. But unfortunately, we just don't have that info now. We don't know. And another myth-busting on vaccines. Yeah. Thankfully, we don't have information about vaccines in dogs increasing the risk of cancer at this point. Cats, it's a different story, but for dogs, we don't have that information. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. So what are some other random cancer myths that we can poke holes in today? I guess I would say it's sort of specific, but one that comes up relatively frequently is that amputation is cruel. So that's good. We haven't talked about this. Let's talk about that for osteosarcoma. I like that. Yeah. So osteosarcoma is the most common bone tumor in dogs. Mm-hmm. If a dog gets a tumor that starts in the bone, over 85% of them are going to be osteosarcoma. And it does eat away at the bone and it is very painful. So again, you know, these dogs might not vocalize, but they're going to be limping and sometimes not even be able to bear any weight on that leg. And it is honestly excruciatingly painful. So often, It depends on the case, of course, but often we'll recommend an amputation Mm -hmm. just to relieve that dog's pain and then chemotherapy to kind of prevent the cancer from spreading to other organs. And if that dog's a good candidate for amputation, which basically means that he doesn't have any other, like he doesn't have terrible hip disease or his knees aren't completely awful, then an amputation is a great option. And It's hard for most people to wrap their heads around because they think of people getting an amputation and that it's just more difficult for people to go around their everyday lives. But we have to remember that dogs aren't people. And if a veterinarian or a surgeon decides that your dog's a good candidate, most of them can honestly do great. And that's even large breed dogs and giant breed dogs like Great Danes especially if it's a back leg instead of a front leg. You can search YouTube and see all of the happy three-legged dogs running around. Most dogs do very, very well with three legs. And most people will say things like, you know, I wish I had done it sooner. His energy is so much better after surgery. So I think that's a big misconception, just that it's cruel, really. They're just in so much pain that doing the surgery is just a huge relief, I think, in most cases. Right. And that does tend to extend life for those dogs, generally speaking. Yeah, exactly. So 
There are lots of different treatment options for osteosarcoma. If we just treat with pain medications, on average, the prognosis is a few months. Certainly dogs can do better, but every dog is different. If we remove the leg and the cancer hasn't spread anywhere, the average prognosis is about four to six months. Mm -hmm. If we remove the leg and give chemotherapy, then it increases to 10 to 12 months with some percentage of dogs living to two years or even three, a smaller percentage. Mm -hmm. There are other treatments aside from amputation, like some types of stereotactic radiation therapy that can reduce pain and kill cancer cells. But the only thing completely 100% guaranteed to relieve all of the pain is, of course, just removing the source of pain. Right. Okay. Well, that is a lot of myth busting for one day. <laughs> yeah. Lots of cancer myths to bust. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Information, education is the answer to everything. Yeah, I, so important. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I believe that you have your own podcast that we'll I be do. able to mm-hmm. uh, share some information about here in our show notes. And so tell us just a tiny little bit about your podcast. So the podcast is called Your Dog Wants You to Know This. And every week we interview veterinary experts, not just in oncology, but other fields, just so that people can learn the latest, what's possible, what's coming down the pipeline, you know, so you're up to speed with everything that we can do for pets these days. I love it. I love it. All right. Well, Lori, thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing your information and I know the listeners do as well. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. 